Chapter 2 of Dawn in the Morning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barbara Hale. Dawn of the Morning by Grace Livingston Hill. Chapter 2. Her father placed her on a Hudson River steamer in charge of the captain, whom he knew, and in company with two other little girls, who were returning to the school of friend Isaac and friend Ruth after a short vacation. Dawn, attired in the grave Quaker garb of the school, leaned over the rail of the deck, and consequently swinging by its ribbons her long gray pocket, containing a hundred dollars, wherewith to pay her entrance fee and provide necessities, and watched her unloved father walk away from the landing. Thee and thou and thy long pocket, called out a saucy deckhand to the three little girls, and Dawn turned with an angry flash in her eyes to take up the work of facing the world, single-handed. She did not drop the pocket into the water, nor fall overboard, but bore herself discreetly all through the journey, and made her entrance into the new life demurely, save for the independent stand she took upon her arrival. My name is Dawn Van Ronsellier. My mother wishes me to wear my curls just as they are. Her two fellow travelers had given her cause to believe that there would be an immediate raid upon her precious curls, and her determined spirit decided to make a stand at the start and not to give in for anything. The quiet remark created almost a panic for a brief moment, coming thus unexpectedly into the decorous order of the place. Friend Ruth caught her breath, and two faint pink spots appeared in her smooth cheeks. Thee will wear thy hair smoothly plaited, child, as the others do, unless it be cut close, she said decidingly, laying her thin pink lips smoothly together over even teeth. Thee will write to thy mother that it is our custom here to annul nothing frivolous or worldly in the dress of our pupils. One glance at the cool gray eye of her oppressor decided Dawn to hide in her heart forever the fact that the mother, whose wish she was flaunting, was no more in this world, no longer had the legal right to express her wishes concerning her child. With ready wits, she argued the matter. But it isn't worldly. God made my curls, and it is just as bad to plate them up and take out the curl as it would be to go to work and curl them on an iron if they were straight. My curls aren't frivolous, and I take care of them myself. My mother loves them, and I must do as she says. Friend Ruth looked at the determined little face set in its frame of dark curls and hesitated. She was not used to logic from a child, yet there seemed to be reason in the words. Besides, Friend Ruth was a great advocate of honor to parents. It was a complicated question. She decided to temporize. I will speak to friend Isaac about the matter, but thee will have to wear them in a net. It is untidy to have curls tumbling about thy face. That was the end of the matter. Dawn wore her curls without further question, albeit in a plain dark net. Though outwardly the little girl was docile, except upon occasion, Friend Ruth learned to avoid any crossings of swords with the young logician, for she nearly always got the worst of it. Dawn took to learning as a bird to the air, having inherited her father's brilliant mind and taste for letters, combined with her mother's keen insight 
and wide perceptive faculties. Her lessons were always easily and perfectly learned, and she looked with contempt upon the plotters who could not get time from their tasks for the fun which she was always ready to lead. The pranks she played were many. On one occasion, she led an exposition of the entire school in a slide down a newly made straw stack, thereby damaging its geometrical shape and necessitating several hours' work by the farmhands. As a punishment, she was remanded to the garden alone to write a composition on the beauties of nature. It began, A great green worm come caming down the populo tree with great tribusence. Friend Ruth read the finished composition with the dismay of a hen which has a duck on its hands and handed it over to friend Isaac. The child has an original mind and is going to be a brilliant woman, he remarked gravely. Yes, Isaac, but thee will not tell her so, said friend Ruth quickly. Six years had passed since Dawn, a child of ten, had come to the school, and she had never gone home. It had been her wish, and for once her father and stepmother were willing to accede to her. To both, the sight of her and the thought of her were painful. Her father had visited her every year and brought with him a full supply of the modest wardrobe that the school allowed, and Dawn had money to meet all her necessary expenses. She lived a sort of triple life, one in the world of her studies, in which she sometimes took deep delight, often going far ahead of her classes because she wanted to see what came next, one in the world of play, where she was a leader in all sorts of mischief getting the older ones into endless difficulties with the teachers and protecting the little ones, even to her own detriment at times. The third life was lived alone in the fields or the woods, where she might sit quietly and look up into the blue sky, listening to the music of the winds and the birds or the sad chirp of a cricket, taking a little grasshopper into her confidence, talking to a friendly squirrel on the maple bough overhead. Here was where she really lived. On the walls of her memory were hung strange, sad pictures of the past. Always, on such occasions, the mother, all in white, with starry eyes, hovered over her and seemed to listen to the wild longing that beat in her young heart and to pour a benediction upon her. She could not think of her father except sadly or bitterly, and so as much as possible she put him out of her thoughts. By degrees, as she came to see on his annual visits how old and careworn he was grown, how haunted and haggard were his eyes, she grew to pity him, but never to love, for her mother had been her idol, and he had killed her mother. That the girl could not forget, though, as she grew older, she felt with a kind of spiritual instinct that she must forgive. She felt it was his own blindness and stupidity that had done it, and that he was suffering some measure of punishment for his deed. She never actually put these thoughts before her in so many words. They were rather a sort of growing undertone of consciousness in her as her mental and spiritual faculties developed. In one year more, she would be through with the school course. For some time, she had been dreading the thought and wondering what would come to her next, if she might go somewhere and teach school? But she felt certain her father would never allow that. He was proud and held ideas about women's sphere. 
though she could scarcely be said to know him well, still she felt without asking that he would never consent. Sometimes she even entertained vague thoughts of running away when she should be through school, for the idea of dwelling under her father's roof again, under control of the woman who had usurped her mother's place, she could not abide. It was therefore with trepidation that she received a message in the schoolroom one morning, bidding her to come to the parlor to meet her father. The fair face flushed and the brow darkened with trouble. It was not the usual time for her father's annual visit. Did it mean that he was going to take her away from school? Her young heart beat to the old tune of the friendly clock at home as she went to answer the summons. Poor child, poor child, poor child, poor child. But in the square, plain parlor, with its haircloth furniture, its gray paper window shades, and its neutral-tinted ingrain carpet, there sat two men with friend Ruth instead of one. Her father looked older than ever before. His hair was silvering about the edges, though he was still what would have been called a young man. The stranger was younger, yet with an old look about his eyes, as if they had been living longer than the rest of his face. Dawn paused in the doorway and looked from one to the other. She had put up her hand as she reached the door and drawn from her head the net which held her beautiful curls in leash. They fell about her lovely face in the fashion of the day. They were grown long and thick, but still kept their baby softness and fineness of texture. She made a charming picture standing, thus with the door latch in her hand, hesitating almost shyly, though she was not unduly shy. Even in her Quaker garb, with the sheer folds of the snowy kerchief about her neck, she looked an unusually beautiful girl. The young stranger saw and took notice as he rose to receive the impersonal introduction that her father gave. The girl looked at them both gravely with an alert watchfulness. Of the stare of open admiration with which the stranger regarded her, she seemed not even to be aware, though friend Ruth noticed it with disapproval. Dawn took the chair to which friend Ruth motioned her at some distance from the young man, and sat demurely waiting, her eyes wide with apprehension. Her father asked about her conduct and standing in the school, but no flush of embarrassment came to the face of the watching girl, though friend Ruth gave unwanted praise of the past year's work. At another time, it would have astonished and pleased her, but now she felt it was a mere preliminary to the real object of her father's visit. As soon as there came a break in the conversation, the stranger took a part, admiring the location of the school, saying he would be glad if he might look about the place, as he had a friend who wished to send his daughter away to school somewhere, and it would be a pleasure to be able to speak in detail of this delightful spot. Was there a view of the Hudson from this point? Indeed, perhaps the young lady would be so kind as to show it to him. Friend Ruth hesitated, but the father waved a command to his daughter. Frowning, she rose to obey. She felt the whole thing was subterfuge to get her from the room while the real object of her father's unexpected visit was divulged. She led the way through the wide hall out to the pillared veranda and down the sloping lawn to the bluff which overlooked the river, where plied a steamer on its silver course. 
Apathetically, she pointed out the places of interest. She scarcely heard her companion's eager attempts at conversation. He noted the absent look in her dark eyes. "'You do not like it here?' he asked, letting his tone become gentle and coaxing confidence. "'Oh, yes,' she answered quickly, with a flit of trouble across her face. "'At least I think I do. I do not care to go away.' Not to your beautiful home, he asked insinuatingly, and your mother, he added, his eyes narrowing to observe her expression more closely. She is not my mother, answered the girl coldly, and became at once reserved, as if she were sorry for having spoken so plainly. Oh, I beg your pardon, I did not know, murmured the stranger, making mental note of her change of expression. Suddenly her eyes flashed wide upon him, and she dashed a question out with a way that compelled an answer. "'Has my father come to take me home? Do you know?' "'Oh, no, not at all,' answered the young man suavely. He was delighted to have found this key to her thoughts. It led just where he desired. "'We are merely taking a business trip together, and your father stopped off to see how things were going with you.' I am sure I am delighted that he did, for it has given me great pleasure to meet you. Why? asked the girl, lifting relieved eyes to his face in mild astonishment. He gave a half-embarrassed laugh at this frank way of meeting him. Now surely you do not need to ask me that, he said, looking down at her meaningly, his eyes gazing into the innocent ones in an open and intimate admiration. You must know how beautiful you are. With a startled expression, she searched his face, and then, not finding it pleasant, turned away with a look resembling her father in its sternness. I don't think that is a nice way for a man to talk to a girl, she said in a displaced tone. I am too big to be spoken to in that way. I am past sixteen, and she'll be done school next year. He dropped the offending manner at once and begged her pardon, pleading that her father had talked of her as a child. He asked also that she would let him be her friend, for he felt they would be congenial, and all the more that she was growing into womanhood. Her gravity did not relax, however, and her eyes searched his face suspiciously. I think we would better go into the house, she said soberly. Friend Ruth will not like my staying out so long, and I must see my father again. But will you be my friend? he insisted as they turned their steps toward the house. How could we be friends? You are not in the school, and I never go away. Besides, I don't see what would be the use. Don't you like me at all? he asked, putting on the tone which had turned many a girl's head. Why, I don't know you even a little bit. How could I like you? Besides, why should I? answered Don frankly. You are deliriously plain-spoken. She caught her lip between her teeth in a vexed way. Why would he persist in talking to her as if she were a child? There, now I have vexed you again, he said, pretending to be much dismayed. But, indeed, you misunderstand me. I do not look upon you as a child at all. Many a girl is married at your age, and you will soon be a lovely woman. I want you for my friend. Are you not willing? I don't know, said the girl bluntly, looking troubled. I should have to think about it, and I don't see why I should. I shall be here a whole year yet, and I shall never see you. I wish I could stay here always, she ended passionately. I never want to go home. 
"'Perhaps you will not need to go there,' he said insinuatingly. "'Wondering how it was, she was so different from other girls. "'She did not seem to understand coquetry. "'Her eyes met his now in mild question. "'You may marry and have a home of your own,' "'he answered her unspoken question. "'A startled expression came into her eyes. "'Oh, no,' she said quickly. I don't think that will ever happen. I don't want that to happen. And she drew away from him as if the thought frightened her. Married people are not happy. Nonsense, said the young man gaily. He had planted the seed in what looked like fallow ground, and perhaps one day it would blossom for him. There are plenty of happily married people. I have a good old father and mother who just worship each other. They've been happy as clams all their lives, and I know a great many more. My father and mother were not happy, said Don gravely. Friend Ruth and friend Isaac do not seem to be very happy either, though, of course, this isn't a real home. But they are never cross, she added in conscientious explanation. If you were married, you could have a real home of your own and have things just as you wanted them, the young man remarked cunningly. That would be nice, said the girl thoughtfully. I should like that part, but... I think I would like it better without being married. There are father and friend Ruth looking for us. Let us hurry. But you have not told me whether you will let me be your friend, he said, detaining her under a great elm tree and looking off toward the river as if he were still watching the steamer. If you will let me be your friend, I will get permission to come and see you now and then, and I will bring you a box of sweets. You will like that, won't you? All girls are fond of sweets. I don't know, answered Don slowly, looking at him with troubled eyes and wondering why it was that his eyes reminded her of a fish. The other girls would like the sweets, he suggested. Could I give them away? she asked with a flash of interest. You may do anything you like with them, he responded eagerly. So it is all settled then, and I may be your friend? I don't know, said Don again. I suppose it will have to be as father and friend Ruth say. No need to consult them in the matter. Leave that to me. All I want is your consent. Remember, I'm going to visit you next month and bring you something nice. But by this time, the others had reached them. Charming view, Mr. Van Rensselaer. I had no idea you could see New York so plainly from this point, said the young man. Dawn stepped over and stood beside friend Ruth, looking thoughtfully down the river. She would like the box of confections well enough, for not many sweets were allowed at the school, and they could have a treat down in the woods beside the brook. But somehow she had a vague uneasiness about this friendship. She did not like the stranger's face. Her father and the other man went away after the noonday meal. The stranger's name, she learned, was Harrington Winthrop, and that he was interested in a business enterprise with her father. The matter passed away entirely from her mind. Only after that, when she sat alone to brood over her life, a new dream took the place of the old. Always there was a lovely home, all her own, with comfortable chairs, plenty of books, and thin sprigged china, such as had been her mother's. In this home she was sole mistress, Day by day she dreamed out the pretty rooms and dwelt in them, and even occasionally let her imagination people them. The image of her beautiful mother hovered about that home and stayed, but there came into it no one to annoy or disturb. 
When the two men settled themselves in the stage that night, the younger began to talk. Do you know you have a very beautiful daughter, Mr. Van Rensselaer? The father started from the reverie in which he had fallen. The look of the moonlight was reminding him of a night over 16 years ago when he and Mary had taken the same stage trip. Strange he could not get away from the thought of it. Ah, yes, it had been the look of his daughter that had brought back Mary's face, for the girl was grown to be the image of her mother, save for a certain sad flitting of severity. In the moonlight outside the coach, he seemed to see again the sweet face in the coffin, and he compared it with the warm living face of the girl whom he had been to see that day. He knew that between his daughter and him was an impenetrable barrier that could never be removed, and the thought of it pierced his soul as it never had before. A great yearning and pity for his motherless, fatherless girl had come into his cold, empty heart as he watched her move silently about. But ever-present was the thought that he had no right, no right in her either, no matter how much he might try. No one would have suspected him of such feelings. He hid them deep under his grim and brilliant exterior, sternly self-contained in any situation. But now, in the half-darkness, a new thought came into his mind, and he started and gave his attention to the words of his companion. Is she your only child? The question made him start again. There was a long pause, so long that Harrington Winthrop thought he had not been heard. Then a husky voice answered out of the shadows of the coach. No, there was another, a little boy. He died soon after his mother. Outside in the moonlight, the vision of a ruddy-haired boy rode in a wreath of mist. The words were the man's acknowledgment to the two who ever attended him now through life. He did not wish to give his confidence to this business companion. Ah, then this beautiful young woman will likely be sole heir to the Van Rensselaer estate, said the young man to himself, rejoicing inwardly at the ease with which he was obtaining information. There was silence in the coach while Winthrop pondered the great discovery he had made and how he should act upon it. But the elder man was lost in gloomy thoughts. He had a vague feeling that Mary, out there in the moonlight, with her bright-haired boy, would hold him to account for the little girl she had loved and lost in her life. A sudden glimpse into the future had been given him, partly by the young man's words, partly by the beauty of Dawn herself. She was blossoming into womanhood, and with that change would come new perplexities. She could not stay always at the school. Where in the world was there a place for his child? More and more, he saw that the woman whom, in the fierceness of his wrath, he had selected to take the place of mother to the girl, was both unable and unwilling to do so. He shrank from the time when his daughter would have to come home. As he thought of it, it seemed an impossible situation to have her there. It would be almost like having Mary in the flesh to live with them, with reproachful eyes ever upon their smallest acts. At that moment it came to him that he was enduring the torments of his lost soul, his conscience having sat in judgment and condemned him. The stagecoach rumbled on, stopping now and again through the night for a change of horses, and the two who sat within its gloomy depths said little to each other, 
yet slept not. For one was musing on the evil of the past and its results, while the other was plotting evil for the future. End of chapter 2